this morning I want to I wanna talk uh, on something I've spoken on before, and so I apologize in advance for that, but um, it's a message that I really feel like is relevant for now. Um, and I want to talk about friendship. And part of the reason I want to talk about friendship is because um, coming out of the pandemic, and let's hope we really are coming out of it for the final time, um, coming out of the pandemic, lots of us are struggling. Um, lots of us are. Not everybody, but, but I think a fair number. Um, and I'll put myself in that group. And we are, we are struggling for all sorts of reasons. Um, mental health, which was, which was challenging before that, and we probably were familiar with some of the, the stats around that. It looks like coming, emerging out of the other side of COVID, it's, it's even more challenging. Um, people who were struggling in their relationships have found that COVID has not helped. People who were feeling lonely before COVID, we knew loneliness was a big challenge in our area. Um, obviously, what's happened in the pandemic is that isolation has increased. And I am finding, and perhaps you are, that people are more sensitive than perhaps they would normally be. People are maybe a little more insecure, um, overthinking things. I know that I'm finding I'm overreacting to stuff. And it's not just that I'm more fragile, it's that actually a lot of the people that are in my life are more fragile as well. Um, and I imagine the repercussions of everything we've just been through will probably continue for, for a while. So uh, it's a good time to pause and to, I think, for us to come to the scripture and see what it has to say to us on this subject of friendship. Um, and it's always mattered, particularly in our part of the world. Mother Teresa, um, who, who was exposed to some of the worst poverty, you know, that you could see, in Calcutta and places where she ministered, she said the worst poverty that she ever encountered was the poverty of the Western world, which was a poverty of loneliness. And loneliness is, is not, it took me a while to get this, it's not just being by yourself. It can be that, but it's also possible to be lonely in the middle of a crowd. You can be, you can be lonely in a church. You can be lonely in a family. You can be lonely in a classroom. What loneliness is, is it's a, a, a feeling a, a, that, that nobody really knows me. And if I wasn't here, I wouldn't be missed. That's what it is to be lonely. Now, God's, God's solution to loneliness in the scripture is relationship. And so the first not good in the whole Bible comes before sin comes into the world. There's a not good in the Garden of Eden. And the not good is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. After God's made the world and he's, he's made Adam, he then says, it's not good for man to be alone. And, and what he means by that is more than simply Adam needs Eve. It's that we need each other. And sometimes we can say, I've heard people say, all I need is God. Do you know what? God doesn't agree with you on that. Adam had God, and God still saw that Adam needed others to be in relationship with. He gives us a family, the church, for a reason. And so um, his solution to loneliness is relationship. And it's not just any relationship. It's, it's a certain, it's a quality of relationship. I used to think the antidote to loneliness was popularity, if I can get popular, if I can be liked, if I can have whatever, however many followers on social media or whatever, then I won't be lonely. The higher my followers, the lower my loneliness. And that just doesn't compute. The antidote to loneliness is not popularity with a crowd. It's closeness with a few. It's not about the, the number of relationships we have. It's about the depth of those relationships. And uh, the sorts of friendship that I want to talk about this morning 
are not the sorts of friendships we can have in large numbers. We'll probably only ever have a small handful of friendships like this. Um, but nevertheless, these are the things that will, I think, make a transformative difference for us. There's loads of examples of friendship we could look at in the scripture, but I want to turn to the story of Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law. And you can find her story in the book of Ruth, which is tucked away in the Old Testament just after the book of Judges. Um, I'm going to read a little bit for you, but just, to, you know, like how in films they have the story so far, right? So just a little bit of the story so far before the bit I read. Naomi, the story starts with her. And she moves from uh, Israel, where, where she was living, with her family, because there's a famine. So she has to go and find food elsewhere. So they, they move to another nearby country called Moab. And there, um, Naomi's two sons, grown-up sons, marry Moabite women. Then what happens is tragedy strikes, because um, Naomi's husband dies. And then not long after that, both of her sons also die. So she's left in the land of Moab with her two daughters-in-law. It's all gone terribly wrong, and she decides, I'm going to pack this up, and I'm just going to go back to Israel. And so the scene that we're about to read takes place under the Middle Eastern sun, on a dirt road, outside the town where they were living, and Naomi is heading home, and she turns around to her daughters-in-law, and this is what she says. This is in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. As far as I can tell, this is the only recorded instance in history of anyone clinging to their mother-in-law. <laughs> but it's in the Word of God, so it had to happen, right? So um, Orpah decides, okay, I'm going to leave. And then Ruth says, no, 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 I'm not going to. And Ruth at this point, understand that Ruth is, she's not someone historians would consider a significant figure. She's not a, a prophet, she's not a leader, she's not a queen, she's not even Jewish at a time when that, that was a big deal. Uh, you know, she's, she's, just, she's just Ruth's, Naomi's daughter-in-law. And that what, what happens, though, is she makes this speech right now. And because of this speech, I think her, her life, the life of this young Moabite woman, echoes the 3,000 years that separate us, and it speaks into our life today. So she turns to Naomi and she says this, but Ruth replied, this is verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And at this point, I would love to launch into a talk about how to get a friend like Ruth. 
how to have incredible friends, right? Wouldn't that, isn't that a talk we all want to hear? How do I get some amazing friends right now? But actually, the way it works in the Scripture, as, as it is so often, is Jesus says to us that the way to find your life is to lose it. The way to self-fulfillment is self-sacrifice. And so as much as I would like to give a talk on how to get incredible friends, because we probably all feel like we could do with some, actually, the way to go in the Scripture is, how do I become a friend to somebody else? How do I become a great friend? So I'm going to give a talk not on how to get a Ruth, but on how to be a Ruth. How do I be a friend to those people in my life who need me right now? And in this little speech that she gives, we see the key to what it is to be a great friend. She says, I will go with you. I will stay with you. I will die with you. I will go with you. That one, that's the, the first one. Friendship is built around something, always. Uh, you know, it's, it's like you go with somebody to something that you have in common. And you'll know, um, we, we know this instinctively because if you've ever been in a situation where it's the opposite of that, where you have nothing in common with the person, it's very hard to, to, to go anywhere. Like my nightmare scenario is always wedding receptions. When I sit next to whoever they've put me on a table with, I turn around and within five, have you ever been there? Within five minutes, you're like, we have absolutely nothing in common. And we've got three and a half hours left. How am I going to cope, right? You can't even hold a conversation with someone who's got nothing in common, let alone have a friendship. And uh, I remember once we were, Mike and I, we were going through uh, Canada together. We were doing a little thing across Canada. This was when I was this intern. I was 18, I was moody, and I am an extreme ext introvert, rather. And we were driving in this car for like six hours a day with some of the other people that were on the trip. And I remember there was a lady there who just, for whatever reason, decided she wanted to talk to me non-stop. And I tried, I really tried, but by day number three, I was at like breaking point. I was going to do my nut. And so I decided, I'm just going to, for the rest of this week, every time I get in a car with you, put my headphones in and pretend I'm listening to music. And uh, it worked because she couldn't talk to me. And instead, she talked to Mike, um, who's also an introvert, but didn't have any headphones with him. Um, and it's like anything like that, you think we're not going anywhere. This isn't gonna, we're not going to get anywhere as friends. But what, what, where it, the opposite is true is when we have something in common, that's the beginning of a friendship. And so what that means is that great friendships are usually discovered so it's not the case that we just get our phone and just scroll through and pick a victim. I'm going to be a friend to you. It's like, it's like when you find someone, it's, it's sort of like, oh, you too? Oh, you love that too? Like you're into that football team or you're into that band or you're into that documentary or whatever. It happens to be, you love that too. So C.S. Lewis, he put it like this. Friendship must be about something even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. He's writing in the 1950s where white mice were obviously fantastic. Um, even if it was just an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. So friendship is about we're going somewhere together. Ruth and Naomi did not sit down by the side of the road and say, let's just sit here and be friends. What they did is they said, let's go on an adventure, a make or break adventure to rebuild our lives. Let's see if we can do that together. So who am I going with is a great question to ask. And, and, and one question many of us ask is, what am I meant to do with my life? That's a good question to ask. But you know, another question that I think is just as good, but hardly any of us ever ask it is this, who am I meant to do life with? Who are the people that he's called me to? 
Who are the people that he's brought into my path that we are meant to go on an adventure with? And don't be surprised if we find that those people are so often the closest of friends where our natural interests and also our supernatural ones, they they overlap, where it's not just a shared interest but a shared purpose. Have you ever sat um, on a bus or on a train with someone and they're a stranger and then somehow, um, without meaning to, they blow their cover and they let you know that they're a Christian. You know, they get out like a Christian book by Pete Gregg or, or, or they open up a Bible or they start listening to Hillsong and you sort of sit there and you think, oh, ho, ho, ho. Do I tell them? If I do, how do I tell them? Do I lean over and say, that is a great book about prayer? Or do I start singing, here I am to worship? Like, how do I let them know? But when you let them know, boom, suddenly it's like, how did you come to know him? Where do you go to church? We have a, we, you're a brother, you're a sister, straight away. So where are we? It's like, I'm going somewhere. That's where it starts. Then, Ruth says this, I will stay with you. It's so easy to miss what a remarkable statement that is. And um, the reason it's remarkable is because there are so many reasons for Ruth not to stay. Reason number one not to stay. Naomi is telling her to leave. Go home is what she's saying. Reason number two not to stay. Ruth is a Moabite and they're heading back to Israel. Now in Israel, if you were foreign, you, had, you were second class citizens. Uh, you know, this is at a time where if your, your, your security as a woman depended on being married. And the chances of Ruth as a Moabite going to the land of Israel and finding another husband were slim to none. So she's saying, I'm going to stay with you even though you're going to a place where my prospective future looks pretty bleak. Reason number three not to stay. Naomi, by this point, is a bitter old woman. And so they get back to the land of of, uh, Israel and, and they were like, Naomi, we haven't seen you for ages. How are you doing, right? And Naomi means pleasant. That's what the name means, pleasant. And Naomi says to them, don't call me Naomi anymore because life's been awful. So you can call me Mara, which means bitter. That's my new name, right? Can you imagine being at a bus stop and turning to someone while you're waiting for the bus and saying, oh, hello, my name's Alice. What's your name? And she says, my name is Life Sucks, right? <laughs> are you going to sit next to her on the bus? I don't think so. And so it's like, this is, my name is Life Sucks. And, and there's all these reasons why, if you were Ruth, you think, okay, see you later. You know what? Have a good luck. All the best. Um, but, but see you later. Ruth, at this moment, she's not sticking around because there's anything in it for her. And this is where one quality friend is worth a thousand skin-deep ones. Friends are the people who stay when there's no reason to stay. They're the people who walk in when everybody else is walking out. And try as I might, I have not been able to come up with a better illustration than this. So forgive me, those of you who have seen it before. But it reminds me of um, this scene from the Lord of the Rings films, which I know are really old now. But there's this particular scene in the Lord of the Rings where the, the friendship in the center of the story, if you don't know the Lord of the Rings, is basically about a little hobbit called Frodo who has to throw an evil ring into a big volcano, but it takes them nine hours to get to the volcano, right? And there's Frodo the Hobbit, and he has a friend called Sam. And the two of them set off with a, with a larger group of friends to get the, the ring to the volcano. 
And at some point on the journey, it dawns on Frodo that the ring is so evil that it's going to begin to corrupt the people around him. And so he decides the only way to deal with this is to, is to do it by himself. And so there's a moment where the, the company is attacked by some, some baddies, some orcs, right? And in the chaos of the battle, Frodo decides, this is my opportunity to slip away from everybody else. He's running not just, by the way, from his enemies, but from his friends as well. I'm going to slip away from everybody else, and I'm going to go. And so in the woods, there's this huge fight going on. And you see in the film, Frodo runs down to the river where they've got these canoes. He hops into a canoe, and he starts to row away. And for those of you who have never seen this scene in the film, fear not, because I will act it for you now. All right? Sam, his close friend, realizes what Frodo is doing. He twigs. And so he rushes down through the woods to the banks of the river. By the time he gets to the bank of the river, Frodo is already sort of some way out from, from the shore. And so Sam yells at him and he goes, Mr. Frodo! No, Mr. Frodo! Right? And then it, it's a close-up of Frodo's face and he's sort of crying and he just goes, no, Sam, no. Right? And he carries on rowing the boat. And then, and then Sam sort of, he yells at him, come back, Mr. Frodo, come back! Right? And Frodo doesn't say anything. He just rows away. And so Sam looks at the boat, and he looks at the water, and then he just sort of launches himself into the river, and he starts wading towards the boat. Right? And then Frodo stands up, and he says, Go back, Sam. Go back. I'm going to Mordor alone. And then Sam says to him, Of course you are, Mr. Frodo, and I'm coming with you. Right? And he carries on going. And then Frodo says, But Sam, Sam, you can't swim. And Sam goes, Because... He can't swim, and he starts to drown, right? And you see him sinking into the river, and it goes for this close-up shot of him under the water, and you see his hand is kind of reaching up towards the surface of the water. And you're thinking, how much longer can he hold on for? Surely not very long. And it does look like he's actually going to drown. And then at the last possible moment, you see Frodo's hand reaching in, grabbing Sam's pulling him up into the boat. And the two of them, they sit there coughing and spluttering, tears and water streaming down their faces. And when Sam's recovered, after a moment, he just looks at Frodo fiercely and he says, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. I made a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Now, what it is to be a Ruth, to be a friend, is it is to be a Sam at moments like this. And this is not easy. Because often what happens when people we love are struggling, often what happens, let's say they're struggling with an eating disorder or anxiety or depression or their marriage is really struggling or they're redundant or whatever it happens to be, often they want to go it alone. And they will, in the same way that Frodo did, they'll run even from their friends. And some of that is, is self-protection. I don't want you to see my shame. I don't want you to see me weak. Some of it is we just don't feel like we can burden other people with our problems. But whatever it is, they try to do it themselves. Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, I'm going to go back alone. My life's gone wrong. There's still hope for your lives, but I'm going to go back alone. Frodo, uh, you know, he says, I'm, 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 I'm doing this alone. And what a friend does in a moment like that is they say, no, no, you're not. Now, hear what, don't hear what I'm not saying, all right? It's not within our power, and I've made this mistake, um, and I still do. It's not within our power to fix our friends. 
And if we take on stuff that only God can hold, then we end up damaged or we end up damaging other people. So if a fan is struggling with self-harm, it's not within our power to stop that. If they're struggling with depression, we can't make it better. If their marriage is in difficulty, it's not in our power to save it. So, you know, but Frodo, like Sam doesn't say to Frodo, I'll take the ring for you. What he says is, I'll come with you. Ruth doesn't say to Naomi, hey, Naomi, I'll come back and I'll sort your life out. What she says is, is different, but it's incredibly powerful. She says to her, in the midst of all of your struggles, in the midst of all of your challenges, I will stay with you. And it's possible to have lots of admirers on social media, lots of admirers in the office, but the test of friendship is do they stay when there's nothing left to admire? And for us, a great question to ask ourselves is, who are the people who, if their marriage went wrong, or if their job went down the pan, or you know, if they lost their health, or they lost their, their looks, or whatever it happens to be, I would still be there for. Who are those people? Um, <clears throat> effectively, what we're talking about is we're talking about commitment. The biblical word for it is a lot stronger. It's the word covenant. Come what may, I'm staying. When I was a student at university, um, some of you have heard this, but I, I remember there's a friend of mine who was really popular in lots of ways, really social guy, studying to be a doctor, and he got dumped. And he, he and I went to the bar one night uh, just after he'd been dumped, and he had a few drinks, and that meant he opened up a little bit. And he said to me, I'm going to be fine. Don't worry about me, Andy. And the reason I'm going to be fine is because I think of myself like a castle. And I have the outer wall, and then I have the inner wall, and then I have the keep right in the middle. Sometimes I let people behind the outer wall. Sometimes I let people behind the inner wall, but nobody ever gets into the keep. And I remember hearing him say that and thinking, I know exactly what you mean, because for so many years, that's how I lived my life too. Walls up, armor on, you can come in so far, but only so far. And what it is to be a friend to somebody else is it's to be a person to whom they can entrust the keys to the keep. Put another way, it's to be a friend with whom someone can be vulnerable and they can tell us about their addiction to pornography. They can tell us about the things that they think about themselves at their worst possible moment. They can tell us about the envy or the jealousy or whatever it is and they find that we still love them, that we still stay for them. Who are those people who... When it's all going wrong, they find us swimming towards the boat. And I know even as I say this, it can be quite painful because for lots of us, we've been probably, I would imagine most of us, we've been in friendships and relationships where it has gone wrong. And, and one of the things that I call to my mind when I'm thinking about that is that that was true of Jesus as well. He was a perfect friend to the 12 disciples and they all let him down pretty spectacularly. You know, they abandoned him. They pretended they'd never met him. And Judas ultimately betrayed him with what? A kiss. The ultimate sign of friendship becomes the thing that marks him out for crucifixion. Jesus understands what it is to be betrayed. And, and the temptation is when we have been rejected and when we have been wounded, the temptation is to go back into the castle, to draw up the drawbridge and to say, no one will ever do that to me again. And that's a vow that I made when I was younger. The problem with it, is although we are safer when we've got the walls up and the armor on, it's safer to never be vulnerable. It is a one-way trip to loneliness. That's the only place we end up in. 
because we cut ourselves off from the hurt that relationships can bring, but we also, in doing so, and unintentionally, usually, we cut ourselves off from the healing they bring as well, from the joy they bring, and from the life they bring. And so my encouragement would be, if you find yourself in this place of basically being incredibly guarded because of what's happened, not to just kind of like, in a cavalier way, let the drawbridge down and just start sharing our darkest secrets with everybody, but wisely and yet intentionally begin to trust and to begin to be vulnerable. So Ruth says, I will stay with you, Naomi, at your lowest point when there's no reason for me to, I'm going to. Now, I can't prove this from the text, um, but I strongly suspect that Ruth went to drama school because she knows how to build a speech, right? She says, I will go with you. I will stay with you, and I will die with you, right? And then she starts going on about, and then they're going to bury us together, and my corpse and your corpse, we're going to be like friends in the grave, and not even death will separate us. And by this point, I think Naomi's like, okay, I've got the point, you're coming with me, let's just go. All right, but she, she, she says it dramatically, but, but actually there's, there's truth in the drama of the words. There's, you know, in a sense... This is what friendship is, and this is not a popular notion in our culture, but this is the truth. Know this. Our few great friendships will cost us greatly. They will. They will cost us in time. They will cost us in money. They will cost us in patience. They will cost us because sometimes we might have friends that stand up before we're about to preach and publicly humiliate us for fun so that they feel better. That might just be a specific one to my life journey, but they will, they will cost us greatly. That's, that's how it's meant to work. There is no shortcut. There is no way around that. And Jesus puts it like this. He says, John 15, verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what it is to love to lay down our lives. And we think, hang on a second. Aren't we as followers of Jesus meant to be laying down our lives for our enemies, loving our enemies? Yeah, we are. And think, if we can't do it for our friends, we ain't got no chance doing it for our enemies. This is where it begins. It doesn't end here, but this is where it starts. And so in practice, what that looks like in our friendships is all sorts of sacrifices. They work their way out, just a few, because we've only got a little bit of time. Uh, ways it works, that we might lay down our lives for those who we're friends with. One way to do that is to practice playing second fiddle. Uh, and that's a, a quote from the message, Romans chapter 10, verse 12 of the message. Um, Paul says, be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. And this image of second fiddle is like second violin in an orchestra. And I don't know a lot about this kind of music, but I've heard from people who do that first first violin is the one that gets the limelight, the one that's like, oh my word, that violinist was the bomb, right? And the second violin is hidden in the shadows, violining away, fiddling away. And what they're doing is they're making the person who's doing the first violin look incredible. They add texture to the music. They, they make them look amazing. What it is to be a friend to somebody else is to champion their dreams, is to see them fly, is to see what they've got in them grow and flourish and be nurtured, and to do that sometimes at our own expense, that they might get the glory, as it were. It's to play second fiddle. Another way that to be a friend to somebody is to lay down your life is it will involve forgiving them. 
And don't you just hate doing that? Isn't that a lot nicer to be like, yeah, that was a horrible thing you did to me. I'm gonna store that one up. I'm gonna write that one down. And I'm gonna bring that out at the crucial moment next time we have an argument. You're looking at me blankly and I'm starting to think, am I the only person who's like this? Uh, Anyway, but like friendship, yeah? It's like a great friendship is always a union of two great forgivers. And to forgive somebody is a dying to self. It really is. Um, here's another way that we, that we love somebody and we lay our lives down for them as a friend. We speak the truth to them. And Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Friends challenge each other and we do it because we love each other. If you have a friend and you turn to them and you say, hey, tell me honestly, does my bum look big in these jeans? And if their response to that question is, If I'm really honest, yes, it looks absolutely enormous. You should not wear them, right? If they say that to you, what you need to do is grab them, kiss them, hug them, and never let them go. Because you have a friend who will tell you honestly what's going on. And they are rare. And we're living at a time, it's interesting to note, where we are less and less willing to challenge each other. Because you can have your truth and I'll have my truth. Have you heard that? Who am I to tell you how to live your life? Have you thought that? I've thought that. And actually, if we, if we are really friends, we want to sharpen each other. We want, to, we want to see each other thrive. And so for that reason, because we love, we speak truth. So this is not like, oh, okay, great. I've got permission. You know what? There's a few truths I've been storing up about some of my friends. Let me get my phone out, right? It's not, it's not that. I'm going to chuck some truth bombs at people. But it's like, it's like I love you too much. For, for, you know, the example I just gave, I love you too much to let you walk around in those jeans. So I don't want to say anything, but I'm going to. I love you too much to let that attitude dominate your life. I don't want to say anything about it, but I am going to. I love you too much to let you drift away from church as a result of the pandemic. So I don't want to say anything, but because I love you, I can't keep my mouth shut. So I'm going to say something. You know, one of the things that I love about Mike, as much as we joke, is that he does tell me (laughs) very honestly the truth. You know, I remember one time after I graduated where we were driving in a car somewhere and um, I can't remember what I said now, but I said something and then I thought about it in the car and I just thought, gosh, that was... That was a really arrogant thing to say. And I just turned to Mike and I said, and I, that was a pattern that I'd noticed quite a bit actually. And I turned to Mike and I said, hey mate, I'm just wondering, I just feel like I might be becoming quite proud. And he turned to me and just said, very kindly, he just said, yes, Andy, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. The git. <laughs> and it hurt. It hurt. But he was right, and I I was so grateful about three hours later (laughs) that he loved me enough to tell me. That's what we do as friends for the people that we love. We speak the truth. And uh, it's got to be mutual, obviously, all of this. We just do this, and it's all one way. That's not friendship. It's a mutual thing. So when they got to uh, Israel, you see Naomi laying her life down for Ruth and preferring Ruth and doing everything she can to see Ruth thrive. That's what friendship is meant to be. So to finish, we hear this. I'll go with you, I'll stay with you, I'll die with you. That sounds like a big ask. I arrived at church this morning and I was already knackered. 
And now I've got to go out and do this. And the hope is not that we do it all in our willpower and strength, all right? Because if we try that, we're not going to get more than two days. The, the real hope for each of us in this is what Jesus says when he says, love each other as I have loved you. It's to understand that he loves us in this way first. And so my call is to love you how he loves me. It's not to love you how you love me, which is usually how we do it. You do the washing up one day, I'll do it the next day. It's not that. It's I'm gonna love you how he loves me. For me to sit here and receive his love and remember that before I'm ever a friend to you, he has come to be a friend to me. He came and he said, follow me. Let's go together. Let's go on an adventure. You can become partners with me as we build the kingdom of the Father. He said, I'm gonna stay with you through thick and thin. We're gonna make a covenant together. I'm gonna seal it with my blood. I'll never ever for a moment abandon you. And he said, I'm gonna lay down my life for you. And he has. And so sitting in that and receiving that, and because of that, then the hope is that I might love in the way that I have been loved. And I finished with this. I absolutely finished with this. Isn't this a bit inward looking for us to talk about this as a church? I understand why we might think that, but the truth is this. We are part of a world that is literally dying in loneliness. And I cannot think of a more attractive thing to the world that we live in right now than a church family full of relationships like these. Because what people will see, and they do see it when they come through the doors, we hear that so often, is the love that exists between us. By this shall people know that you are my disciples, said Jesus, that you love each other. And they'll see our relationships, they'll see our friendships, and they'll think, gosh, that, that really reminds me about what I heard God was like. And then we'll tell them the story of Jesus. And they'll think, gosh, that really reminds me of the way that you guys seem to love each other. And they'll be drawn to him. The call for us, and I know it's hard when we are knackered, but it is, how do we love those people he's called us to well? We go with them, we stay with them, and we die with them.